Well, it's good to be together. Um, I was giving my three children this week uh, the riot acts. They were getting a good old daddy lecture filled with my wit, my wisdom, um, my profound depth of understanding of life, and all that they needed to know. And there was a bit of this going on in the middle of it. There was a certain tone in my voice. And right towards the tail end of me imparting such incredible wisdom to my three children, I noticed that two of them, it was like their eyes were glazed over. It was like there was nobody home. And I was, I was like indignant. I'm like, they haven't even been listening to me. I've just given them everything that they need, right? If they only listen to me. And so I was like, hey, you two. You haven't heard a word, so you three are getting the whole thing again. And there was a certain body language like this. And so I say all that because we're going to read a passage of Scripture now, and it's very unusual. There's a thing called the Synoptic Gospels. There's four Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason they're called that is a little cer- a certain sense of, of um, they synchronize a little bit in that they cover some of the same territory. In fact, a substantial amount of the same territory, uh, you know, this healing or, or that sermon in this location or, or this occasion. And then you've got John, and he kind of goes off to some other territories. This particular passage of Scripture right here, it's like God's like, I'm giving this to you once, twice, three times. In fact, I'm going to put this in each of the four Gospels. So this should give us a little pause here to say, okay, God, What is it that you really want to say to our hearts today? So let's take a look. Mark chapter 11, and Jesus is entering Jerusalem uh, actually for the very last time. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of the disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt, that's a donkey, a, a colt tied on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then really significant phrase right here. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. As he entered Jerusalem... And went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went to Bethany with the twelve. So very unusual little passage of scripture. Appears for us in all four of the gospels. God, what is it that you have to say to us? Well, Jesus, in this 11 verses, he is simply entering Jerusalem. He is coming into the city. And we see immediately that there is it's quite a reaction. Hosanna in the highest, before him, behind him, shouting, clapping, singing. Blessed is the coming kingdom. And then they mention this name, David. Quite a reaction. And you'll notice there's nobody that's doing a warm-up act. There's no, here comes Jesus. This just, he arrives, and all of a sudden, there is this this, response and massive amount of energy. And what's happened here is it would seem as though the people 
are actually beginning to grasp who he is. They're beginning to see this is the Messiah. And it's stirring something. There's a response coming about in their lives. Undoubtedly, some of the people in this crowd saw Lazarus alive, saw Lazarus in a tomb for several days, and then saw Lazarus uh, alive again. They saw him dead, and they saw him alive. And they saw that Jesus was the difference maker in that. He's the one who brought supernatural power to me. Undoubtedly, people in this crowd were around when there was this blind beggar on the street, and he's sitting there, and he just starts roaring at the top of his voice, Jesus, son of, and look look at the phrase that's in here. It says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And this blind beggar shouts out super loud, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's so loud, the disciples, like they just try to shut him up. They're like, you need to calm down and take it down a notch. And he won't. He won't stop. He's shouting louder and louder. He just is like, I have got to be in contact with Jesus. He's the son of David. This is this king from the Old Testament. No doubt there were many individuals in the city at that time who had been some part of Jesus when he was speaking incredible truth and revelation and forgiveness and love and, and, and an understanding of the Father that they had never, never understood before. No doubt that there were on two massive occasions. It's called the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. And those numbers only counted the men. So they, it could have been the feeding of the 10,000 and the 15,000. No doubt there were people here who had supernaturally been fed by the hand of the Son of God. And Jesus chooses this moment, a massive festival taking place in the capital city of the country, Jerusalem. This festival is called the Passover, bigger than any other festival. He chooses this moment to enter the city when it is absolutely packed with people. Now, I want you to grasp this, please, if you would. The people who were in the city, they had a conscious awareness, a conscious understanding that they were the people of God. And and therefore, that in their history and in their past, they believed this in their bones, that their God had saved them and rescued them and done incredible things with their people in the past. And they knew all the stories of the parting of the Red Sea and plagues and Egypt and Moses and Abraham and prophets and all kinds of incredible things. That was their culture. It was their heritage. It was their education. An extremely religious country, without doubt. And it saturated everything and everyone. And so they would tell stories to their kids and grandkids. I mean, this was the way they understood. And so you've got a people who have a conscious awareness of what God had done in the past. And as equal as they had an understanding of yesterday and history, they also had this conscious awareness that the whole country had been waiting and waiting and waiting that one day not only had Jesus rescued, or God rescued them in the past, but that a Messiah was going to come in the future. And that they lived and breathed with this conscious, full grasp that this was going to happen for them and to them. And they were... I think looking at Jesus and there's this sense of like, could this be the moment? Could this be fulfilled? Like in our lifetime, because generations have been waiting for this. Could this be happening in front of our eyes? There's this expectation that is rising up inside of them that God would come as a king to restore Israel at this time. 
There's other moments in the Old Testament where a king would enter the city. There's one guy by the name of Solomon. This is like the golden monastic age for Israel. Saul, David, Solomon. Solomon, it's his inauguration. And in 1 Kings chapter 1, there's this moment where he is walking through the city, walking amongst the people, going up to the temple. He's about to be made king. And this is what it says in 1 Kings. It says, the clapping and the rejoicing and the singing and the shouting, it says, it was so loud that the ground began to shake. Now, I don't know if that's exaggeration or hyperbole. Is it just trying to emphasize the point that it was pretty darn loud? I mean, it was people were really getting excited. Or if this is literal, I don't know. But they actually asked the question, what is the meaning of the noise in the city? What does this mean for us? Well, the king has come. The people knew that in Solomon they had a wonderful new king. And it was this awareness that he was walking in their very presence, that he was, he was literally passing right in front of them, and he was about to be declared king, and that he was a godly, wonderful man. And so they began to shout and clap and dance and rejoice, so much so that the ground is vibrating like it's going to fall apart. It's a dramatic moment. Now here we have Jesus entering a city. But for those individuals with a conscious awareness of the past, the problem for them with the king was, was that that picture had begun to unravel. It had begun to become undone. And the reason why was because every king they ever had had failure. Every king they ever had at some moments or occasions, they kind of ended up falling flat on their face and making terrible mistakes and sometimes turning away from God and neglecting what they should be about. And then in would come the prophets and they'd hear the voice of God and there would be judgment. And they had almost a bad taste in their mouth. But they knew this was the case. In Psalm 135 and in Isaiah 52, Scripture presents this idea that somehow this king would be coming back. But that when he did... His presence would become more real to them than they had ever known, even in their entire past. And that's a rich inheritance. That when this king came, that he wouldn't be like any other king that had failed. That he would be more than nice or a good or more than even a new king. But it would be the king of all kings and he would bring a restoration that had never been there before. And that the people would experience more of God in their lives than they had ever understood. That somehow God was returning in a way that they had only dreamt possible. And it's like they can taste it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever longed for something. It's like a child on the countdown to Christmas morning. Well, they had had generations of this. Truly looking back at a conscious awareness of God and yet saying, but when are you coming again? When will this be restored? Up until now, as we look at the ministry of Jesus, it's almost on every occasion we see him walking. Jesus is walking. He's walking everywhere. There's one or two occasions where we see Jesus in a boat. But otherwise, Jesus is always walking. He's walking with his disciples. He's walking amongst crowds of people. But here we have something very, very different. Suddenly, Jesus decides he's going to get on an animal. He's going to get on a donkey. And that is how he's going to enter this city. Now, his intent, and you've got to look at the man of action. 
I mean, his intent, he knows what he's doing. He knows why he's doing it. He's about his father's business. His intent is to bring life into the city, into the city of Jerusalem. Look at this man of action. His purpose is so strong that in one of the other accounts, it actually says that as Jesus is entering the city, he actually is weeping. It's Luke's account. He says the Messiah is coming in and he's weeping over the city. And there's something in the heart of God that says, man, if only... If only you knew, if only you had allowed me to come and to be king, to actually be kinging amongst you, to be kinging into the people of God. If only you had allowed that. He longs to bless and to restore and to redeem and to lift up this city, that it might be a place where the kingdom of God is made manifest and he would be the king of the city. He's not coming to condemn. It's his heart, his posture, his weeping. Don't you know what I want for you? There are some of you here even today. And I believe the Holy Spirit's posture towards you is that he's weeping. He's weeping. There, there's some of you in the room today. And, and, and God's posture towards you is, if only, if only you would allow me to come and be kinging in your life. I, I long to actually restore and to make you whole and to bring and to bring healing. That's what I long for you. If only you would, and something inside of us that just goes, nope. And, and actually the heart of God is weeping over your life. Jesus comes in on this animal. It's a donkey. Everyone else's perception of what Jesus' entrance would look like was a stallion and a sword in his hand and an army behind him. And Jesus doesn't do that. This is a humble creature. Jesus is entering the city in a very gentle way. And in this moment, the people are beginning to grasp. You've got to understand what they're wrestling with. Like, we've been waiting for generations. Are you telling me that in my lifetime, on this day, in this moment of my life, before my eyes, that this could possibly be? And they just start to cry out. They become convinced, this is it. This is the moment. And this is no ordinary moment at all. It's actually fulfilling scripture with tremendous detail. He comes in from the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is coming in from a height. The Mount of Olives stands at about 2,700 feet in elevation. That's where he's coming in. Everyone can come in. He's coming from this height that people can see him, and they're just taking off their cloaks and their coats, and they're just laying them down, and they're cutting down branches, just giving this, this red carpet, and everyone can see this massive crowd. And who's in the center? One man riding this animal. And everyone's looking and they're realizing. And then they begin to speak this word. They're laying everything down. And you remember I mentioned that they have this, this grasp of the Old Testament. I, I mean, you've got to know, like, they know their scriptures. Like, that, this is their education. They know the law. They know what the Old Testament says. They know that Jesus coming down from a height into the city of Jerusalem, riding specifically on this animal, is actually a fulfillment of Scripture. It is Jesus Christ identifying himself with kingship and with David, this Davidic line or heritage. He's lining himself up with that. And for them, something great is happening right in front of their eyes. And they know this, and there's this awakening happening inside of them. There's a book in the Old Testament called Ezekiel. And in chapter 10, it actually talks about the glory of God departing from the temple. It's leaving the temple, the glory of God. But there's a promise in there. 
that the glory of God would return once again to the temple, that there would be a rebuilding again of the temple. And Jesus, one day, he's actually standing in the middle of the temple, and he literally says to them, if you tear down this temple, and it's actually John who writes about this, and he's like being unbelievably clear about it. He actually says it in the scripture. He's like, Jesus wasn't talking about the building, the facility. He wasn't talking about bricks and mortar. He was talking about himself. He says, if you tear down this temple, he says, I will rebuild it again in three days. And they are confused and they don't understand him. What is he doing? Well, he's referencing this Old Testament promise from Ezekiel chapter 10. There's this promise that when the temple would be rebuilt, that the glory of God would be restored. He's saying, look, my body is about to be smashed and broken, but when God raises it up and takes me out of the grave, I need you to know that the glory of God will be released. And Mark makes no mistake about it. He literally says it will come from a high place. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, it literally says it will re-enter through the east gate. Jesus is coming from this height back in through the east gate, riding on this donkey, and they're looking at this and they're going, no, no way, because they know Ezekiel chapter 10. Is this the glory of God? Could it be that that's being restored right now in front of us, that the king is coming into Jerusalem? The king is coming back. His glory is coming back. There's awakening in the hearts of the people. You know what this means? things that are broken are now going to be fixed. The line, talking about the lineage of these kings, is going to be restored. We're going to know the presence of God like we've never known it before. It's going to be real. The stuff that we only dreamt about, the stuff that we told our kids and our grandkids, on that, you know, it seems like almost a fairy tale, but it's not a fairy tale. It's, it's actually happening right now. There will be a day, and on that day, he's going to come back, and he's going to fix everything. This awakening, this quickening, and here it is. Like right in front of our eyes. He's walking, on, he's riding on this animal right in front of us. And then here it comes. Because that, that truth had gripped their hearts en masse, en masse, they begin to quote scripture. And they come out with this strange word, en masse, this huge crowd of people, they just shout out, Hosanna. It's this word. It literally means save us. I mean, save us. And there's an urgency to it. There's like a panic almost. Save us now. And not only that, but it identifies the action with the person. Save us, Savior. You're the Savior. You're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been waiting for. And now we declare that we are a people who need saving. We need God. They're literally making this declaration that he is the Savior. He is the Son of David. He is the Messianic person. We've been waiting, but the waiting is over. We understand that we need a Savior. And he is walking right in front of us right now. And inside of them, knowing that truth, they don't give a rip. They don't care what anybody thinks about them. They spontaneously break out into this noise, into this shouting and praising and clapping and singing and save us, Savior, knowing that salvation is walking walking right in front of them. What a moment. What a moment. Why does Jesus do all of this? It's a dramatic moment. Why is he doing this? Why does he specifically walk down from a height? Why does he enter in through the east gate? The Ezekiel prophecy 
apart from making himself known and being deliberately clear, one of the words that we can almost miss is right there. As it is written. As it is written. That's what he's doing. These things had been written about him. That's what he's about. Jesus knew what the prophecies said about him as the Messiah. Now some of the prophecies, because there are many of them, some of the prophecies you could possibly argue, well, how can anyone possibly fulfill them? There are some of them that are impossible to manipulate. Like, you know, you read something, you say, well, I'm just going to do that, and then people will think that I'm the, pro- I'm the Messiah. But there are some that are simply impossible to, um, to contrive, to be born of a virgin. It's hard to navigate your way through that one, isn't it? To come out of Egypt. Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they had to run to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill them. And then they came out of Egypt to be born in Bethlehem. It's pretty hard to, for you to manipulate the place of your birth. It's impossible. You can't do it. To be a Nazarene. All of these specific things. Some of these things, he knows that they've, written about, they've been written about the promised Savior. He's aware of the promises. In fact, Jesus, without a doubt, he grew up hearing about them and that he had read them and studied them. There's another tiny little book in the Old Testament. It's like, it's hard to even find. You just skip over it. It's known as a minor prophet. It's minor. It's tiny. It's called Zechariah, chapter 9. You'd almost skip over this little book. And in there it says that the Davidic king, David, the very thing that they're shouting out about, the Davidic king would come back riding on a, a donkey. This one specific animal. That he would come back bringing righteousness. That he would come back with humility and gentleness. Not on a stallion and not with a sword in his hand. That this is how he would return. And they are carrying this awareness, this profound conscious understanding of what God had done in their past. And that God was going to come back again as a king. And he was going to rule and reign and bring his power that will be manifest in the city and in their lives. And now they're seeing the minutiae of the prophecy coming to pass. Not only, why is Jesus doing this? Not only is he making himself visible and great, and he rightfully show, uh, rightfully so, but please hear this. Every promise that God makes, God fulfills. Amen? Every promise that God makes, God fulfills. Everything he says that he's going to do, he simply does. And you can stand on that. You can go to the bank with that. Today, there are some of you here today, you don't need a cliché. You don't need an attaboy or a pat on the head. You don't need a hang on in there. Or you don't need a, it's going to be okay. You need to stand on something that's much stronger than that. You need something that is true. Something that you can stand on when it feels like everything else is crumbling in front of you. Every promise God makes, He's going to fulfill. I'm going to say it one more time. Every promise God makes, He's going to fulfill. We can get behind that church. Jesus knows what the Father has said, and he's making sure that it gets done. This is the man of action. He knows what the Father said was going to happen, and then he lived his life in such a way that everything that was said about him happened, and it happened perfectly. 
everything took place, every promise that God makes over your life, Jesus is able to fulfill it. Everything that you're desperately clinging onto. If you're standing on a promise today over your children, you need to know that you're standing on a firm foundation. Do not be anxious about anything. You don't need to. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind, and He is able to keep you. Whatever you're facing today, Jesus is able to fulfill every promise over your life, over your occupation, over your ministry, over your spouse, over your money. In fact, this is what it says. In Jesus Christ, every promise is yes and amen. Look at this little nugget. This moment when he tells his disciples, head on out to Bethany. I want you to grab this, this donkey for me. He sends them to get the donkey that no one has ever ridden. He says, just going to be there waiting for you, tied up. And if somebody asks you, you just tell them the master has need of it. And that's exactly what happens. They simply say what they're told to say. The master has need of it. Now, if that were me, I'd be like, yeah, what master? You and what army? That's my donkey. And what does he need it for? But we don't see any of that in Scripture. It's incredible. It was just, you see, the people of Bethany, they knew who Jesus was. It was enough for them that they simply heard that the master had need of it. They didn't need ex any explanation. They didn't need any motivation. Why? Because he's the king. And if the king says, this is what I want, something inside of you should go, absolutely. The king says, I have need of you. Great. What can I do for you? How can I serve the king? The king says, here's what I need. No problem. Let me give you that, and then let me give you everything else on top of it. So they're responding to the scripture. Do you see the direct and purposeful and active nature of the second person of the Trinity in the scripture? Do you see this man of action? He's making himself known to you today as Savior and as King. There will be nothing left undone. He's not leaving anything to be forgotten or neglected or a mistake. I will fulfill everything that will be required so that I can be your Savior King. I'm coming into Jerusalem and I know what I'm facing. Today's adulation will become tomorrow's rejection. The same crowd who sees me as Messiah are going to turn on a dime and they're going to reject me as Messiah. The same crowd are going to turn into a mob and they're going to cease to shout, Hosanna, and they're going to start to scream, crucify him. I know all of these things, but I will remain undeterred. I will be unstoppable. I will do what my Father has sent me to do. But in this moment, for the people who understood the truth of Jesus the Messiah, this was enormous. This was so significant. And the Pharisees, <laughs> it's, like, it's like the same... It's like the same thing, different chapter. The Pharisees can't stand what's happening. They're looking at these people, declaring him as Savior, calling him, please come and rescue us and save us. And they can't cope. They're looking at Scripture. They know Scripture. They know Zechariah. They know Ezekiel chapter 10. They know Isaiah 52. They know Psalm 135. They know all this. They see it happening in front of them, and they're just dying. They're like, this can't be happening. He can't be fulfilling these Scriptures. These people, they need to stop it. And they literally, there's one Pharisee. I think it's in John, or it's in actually Luke. 
in Luke's account, this Pharisee runs up to Jesus and he's like, you need to tell him to stop declaring this about you, that you're the Savior and worshiping you and laying down this red carpet. Tell them to stop it. It's too late. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you don't understand. If I ask them to stop, the very rocks are going to start crying out my praises. You don't know who's walking in front of you. You don't know that I've actually arrived. You don't know that the king is here. And I'm doing everything that I need to do to accomplish what the Father has sent me. There was a time where I did things and it was in a hidden manner because I needed to accomplish what I needed to accomplish. But now I am making it known that I am here in the Davidic line, that I am the Messiah. I'm walking right in front of you that I have come to lay down my life even for you. And as I approach the cross, make no mistake that I will be that one to lay down my life. Make no mistake, I am that king. I am who you've been waiting for. I am who you've been hoping for. I am who you've been dreaming about. Worship team, come on up. The Old Testament says, when the king comes back, it's very poetic language. It says, the trees will clap their hands. And I always wondered, like, what does that mean? Is it, I thought, maybe, is, is, is it the wind? And maybe the wind would cause the trees to make this kind of sound. Here's what I think it is. I think it's that the king is returning and now everything is just turning into life and the trees are flourishing with the life of the king because he has returned and there's this spontaneous bursting out into praise and adoration. Literally all of creation giving him glory and honor and praise. It's unstoppable praise. It cannot be stopped. And even if you will not praise him today, even if you will not open your mouth, you need to know this, that heaven itself is flat on its face worshiping this king. That there are people even this very hour, on this morning and over the hours of Sunday morning all throughout the globe, people who have been weeping and praising shy people, quiet people coming into his presence and lifting up hands and shouting and dancing not because of emotionalism or because the music's really good or there's a charismatic leader or it's sort of some sort of frantic feeling kind of thing, simply because they know this, that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that's it they know it, they know it in their hearts and it ignites something inside of them. There's an excitement and a joy. It's like, here he comes. Here he comes. He's coming. He's longing to come into the city. Longing to come into my life. He's riding on a donkey in tremendous humility. He's walking amongst us as a servant. He didn't come to judge you. He didn't come to condemn you. He says, I've come to invite you. To come and be part of a celebration. King is here. The king is here. I've arrived. And in your hearts, you've got to settle that. Every one of you, you've got to settle this in your own life. Will you honor him? Will you give thanks and reverence to the king? You've got to settle that in your life. All that I am, you have need of it, God, no problem. There it is. Everything that I have, I lay it down at your feet. The king has come. Our heavenly father has loved us with extravagant abandonment. Passionate, undignified worship is the only reasonable response. Here is our King. Here He comes. Here is our love. He is the one that has come to bring us back to Him. He is the one 
He is Jesus. Let us stand. Let's worship.